This is Terry Montesi, CEO of Trademark Property Company, and welcome to Trademark's podcast, Leaning In, where we'll look at the future of retail and mixed use and how we can lean into it, even though others are leaning out. On today's episode, Tommy Miller, our Chief Investment Officer, and I speak with Kevin Lillis, CEO of Hospitality Alliance. We discuss the role of food halls in today's mixed-use environments and his unorthodox thoughts on the future of retail and how he sees the current trends being impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. We also touch on the cutting-edge work his company is doing and how he sees technology impacting retail. Thanks for listening. But Kevin, you're the CEO of Hospitality Alliance, and you focus on hotel F&B opportunities and including them in mixed-use developments in office complexes. Share with us more about what you and your company do and um, when you started, where you're based, what you've done to date. And I know your F&B work in the Plaza Hotel and the food hall sector is particularly interesting. Sure. Thank you. Uh, I come from a, uh, a real estate and finance background. And my partner, Kelly Jones, really comes from a traditional food and beverage operations background. Uh, he started culinary school, then became a, a, a general manager of a restaurant. So he's really more of the traditional ops. Me coming from real estate and finance, um, I think I look at the, the projects a bit differently. But that's why I think we work as a team. And that's why I think we've been successful in mixed-use projects that really require different disciplines across how, how you look at a development. But currently, um, the one we're launching right now is uh, AT&T's headquarters in downtown Dallas, the Discovery District. We've just been able to, to open uh, the about half of that so far. And we're looking to hopefully open up uh, that in stages over the next six to nine months, depending on how everything goes with vaccines, et cetera. So that one is, is going to be, it's unique in the state of Texas and that it's a liquor license that extends across the whole campus. It, it does combine inclusive concepts, exclusive concepts, you know, and, and a lot of different elements. So it's a, it's a really fun project. Yeah. Tell us a little more about your, your background and, and how you got started and the, the work at the plaza. Sure. Uh, paid my way through school, working at a law firm, then got in real estate, became head of real estate for the largest owner of hotel, private owner of hotels in New York, uh, Dream, and then became a food and beverage guy when our, our restaurants were closing in the recession. I had done a lot of events. I was a partner with Friday Night Fights for about 200 events, and then I launched my own events company. So I had traditionally looked at spaces in terms of events, kind of, I think I was teaching myself by accident, kind of going into empty armories and ballrooms and things like that, setting it all up and then tearing it down. And it's, it's an environment that's a little more forgiving because I think event guests don't have the same standards often of restaurant guests. But it's something that becomes really obvious once you let 4,000 people in the room, if you've made some errors, you put things the wrong way, or you, you located the bar in the space where you shouldn't have. So it's something that through that, once I had become head of food and beverage uh, for Dream, it turns out I, I'd known a, a bit more than I, than I thought I had just from my event experience. And Kelly Jones, who's now my partner, was my, my favorite operator that was reporting to us. And that's where that relationship started. So at the Plaza... You know, it was really a, a condo conversion deal. They had taken they had taken about 550 of those rooms, converted them to condos. They had made their return and then some. But in the meantime, they kind of had neglected all the food and beverage and all the experiential aspects of it. That really wasn't the goal of the the people that firm that I worked for was focused on. So when they acquired the property, it really was was a place where it was mainly tourists taking pictures in front of the Christmas tree kind of thing. It wasn't something where you know, New Yorkers wouldn't be caught dead having a drink in there. So um, we started the, the long road of, of bringing that back and, you know, renovated the Palm Court and, and did the, the food hall, which is, um, I believe, still the highest grossing food hall in the country, sales per foot uh, in the basement space. And it's a really exciting project and, and one I was proud to be a part of. And does your data show that you've been able to attract locals to that food hall is no longer all tourists? Correct. The bar there was a challenge. You know, it's been open since 1906, Palm Court, really famous room. So it was landmarked on the interior. So uh, in, in putting a bar in there, we needed to make it look like it, it was there from 1906. So 
So we put these um, this lattice around the edge of it, and they they made us do it oval, which is a real challenge because all equipment really comes in. All equipment is is hard edges, and uh, when you have an oval bar, nothing really lines up. You know, you don't get oval uh, reaching refrigerators. Yeah. So pretty expensive. But um, we made it look like it was always there and we developed a cocktail program and uh, we started hiring people. They thought we were crazy, but, you know, then it was two at the bar and then it's five at the bar. And now it's a really kind of bustling uh, cocktail scene that actually Tommy once joined me for, uh, for a drink there. So now it's, yeah. now it's quite a scene. But when we opened it, people thought, you know, no one's going to come back to this building because it was such a long renovation that really the locals had, had completely given up on that being a neat place to grab a drink. Great bartender there, by the, by the way. Perfect. So everybody go give it a try. So tell us about a little more about AT&T and the genesis of that and what their goals were with that. And then uh, any other exciting projects you're working on and, and how you see how your business has been impacted by COVID. And Sure. I mean, AT&T, I think it's the goal with, with, with everybody um, in that for them, it's really about attracting, hiring, retaining the best talent they can. So I think, I think that was really their, their, um, their focus here. So they, they really made their campus um, something that people want to work at and, and something that really instills kind of positive morale uh, among their, you know, their, their, their core employees there. That was the primary reason. They want to be a company that, you know, despite having such rich history, and despite being cutting edge with their acquisition and, and you know, in Time Warner and now owning HBO and DirecTV and all, all these other brands, you know, DC Comics and, you know, and Turner, you know, Warner Brothers Studios and all the things that comes with that, they still have a very rich tradition. So I think a, a big part of this was kind of taking them into the next, you know, the next phase of, of who they are as a company, but also again, really making it a place that's that's great for their employees to work at. So we are helping them actually execute that. And, and it's something that I think they're, you know, they would have been unique, but now it's much less unique in the office sector as people have gone from three per thousand density to five per thousand density. And now they're, you know, probably closer to seven per thousand density. The, the, the campus had the same buildings used to have about 2,500 people. And, and now it's going to have over six and in the pre-COVID world, we were looking at it climbing towards 7,000 in the same buildings. So as a result, people aren't really working uh, in, in so many exclusive offices the way they traditionally were before. It's a lot of great Wi-Fi and, and laptops and, you know, work where you work. So that's something that all of our spaces are, are have to be extremely flexible in terms of, yes, they're, they're, they're dining spaces, but they're also gathering spaces. They're also spaces where people are just going to take a breakout meeting because it's if people can only meet in a reserved conference room and they're taken like, well, they just go down there and they grab a cup of coffee. And if they, if they nurse that cup of coffee for four hours and, you know, have a couple of meetings down there, then, you know, that's what we're designed for. And we designed it accordingly, making sure that we're, we're going to have the seat capacity for, for that to happen without any friction. How important do you think that your facility is going to be for AT&T hiring and retaining great people it sounds like that was the the key motivation sure. uh, with this project yeah i mean i think if if you're working there and you have you know best in class of of the food offerings within your campus you have a great place to grab a drink afterwards and then they brought in cowboy fit to do their fitness center and then we're going to have you know yoga on the lawn and we have this 106 foot media wall, you know, 6K resolution that's going to be showing content. You know, I, I hope all those things are, are, are going to contribute to making it a place that people really like to work at. Because candidly, it's been a bit tough for them to work at it in, in recent history with the amount of construction that was going on and make it that way. And how has your business been impacted by COVID? And how have you seen food halls impacted by COVID around the country? Um, our, our business, it's, it's really shifted because we're in a downtown environment. So, you know, if we think about um, your revenue periods and, and we usually break it up in 28s. So breakfast, lunch, dinner, beverage, seven days a week. And the, the periods that are busy have completely flipped. 
So as opposed to having downtown Dallas, where we had, you know, 135,000 employees in the downtown market, now that number is, you know, next to nothing. As opposed to being absolutely slammed for lunch and happy hour, it's really the opposite. It's nights, it's weekends. You know, there's much less residents than than workers downtown. And I think I think that's probably happening in, in restaurants across the country where most are either, you know, they're either where people work or they're where people play. And if there were people work, it's those 10 revenue periods, you know, 15 if you include happy hour of breakfast, lunch, dinner, Monday to Friday, and you kind of roll it up nights and weekends and, you know, pick it back up Monday morning or it's the inverse. And right now we were a place that originally were set to be that kind of a, a, a business. And, and then it was it completely flip-flopped. But we have, you know, 90-minute waits for tables on Saturday nights. So that that was something we were going to try to build into by year two, year three. And instead, six months in, we're already doing that. But the, all the business we thought we were going to have, hotel business, convention business, downtown uh, office worker business, that's all borderline non-existent. So we've really had to be flexible. And, you know, the team's done a great job doing that. And we, we all know that COVID is happening and that's that's changed everything. But you're in a business with big, flexible spaces, supporting entrepreneurs, uh, lots of choices. How do you see this this sector changing the way mixed-use places work in the future and single-use restaurants versus wide-open food halls? Have things changed because of COVID or were these trends that were already in place? They, they, they for sure have. I mean, for us, I think it's it's something that, that outdoor space was always massively valuable and now it is somehow that much more valuable. I mean, being able to have those kind of spaces that people feel comfortable in. I think food halls... I guess are really going to like the, the transparency even more than they did before in the sense that they, they watch the food being prepared and served to them and they see every aspect of it. So it's not behind a closed kitchen. They know exactly who touched their food and they watch it happen right in front of them. And I think those aspects people are really going to like more in COVID. But you know, the community seating uh, aspect is going to be a challenge. We have the benefit of a significant amount of outdoor seating on on two sides of our food hall when we do um, decide it makes sense to, to open up. But it, it is something that massive interior spacing or dependence on, on diners sitting inside is, is clearly going to be impacted, especially in, a, in an industry where, as it is, our, our margins are sub 20% for, for even a healthy restaurant. So you take 50% of that room out or even 25% of that room out, it doesn't take too long before it's really impacting your numbers. And I know this has impacted restaurateurs severely and the cost of opening up a new restaurant versus maybe opening up in a, in your, one of your places is, is different. Do you think that support of entrepreneurship and flexibility is, could usher in acceleration and the appeal of food halls going forward? Yeah, there's going to be, you know, there, there's a lot of amazing chefs and restaurateurs that just because the circumstances of this might have been pushed out of the business and, and a food hall can give give a chef uh, an opportunity to get back in for a much more reasonable buy-in, you know, 50, 75 grand passing the hat as opposed to, you know, one and a half to $3 million capital raise to, to really open a standalone restaurant. So that's definitely going to have an aspect of it. Candidly, I think things are going to be really difficult for unfinished restaurant spaces. Any of the smart restaurant money out there and most of the people that are successful in the restaurant business are pretty sharp. They're really going to be looking at second gen, third gen spaces, looking at food halls, looking at those kinds of things where they don't have a big buy-in to be able to get their brand out to guests. And I think the other big thing that, you know, we, we had already seen those, those, those trends happening. And as, as Tyra was saying, everything was happening, so happening more in the sense that like everything has been going so hard in this delivery business and this takeout business. And this is just, you know, amplifying. So we have at the, the food hall, we're opening these touchless to go boxes where you order on an app and it's no, uh, it's no charge. And then you just swipe the QR code and the box opens up. 
because that's something that, you know, as, as the Uber Eats and Grubhubs of the world are charging 30% in a, in a business with, you know, where great margins are 15 to 18, you know, being able to, to give something seamless, give something touchless and give that convenience while our challenge was being able to do it in a food hall setting where we had 19 different operators and being able to have the order pull up to the right ticket and the runner know how to take it to the box and all those aspects. So I think those kinds of things, it's always been something of, you know, the, the restaurant industry is a bit traditional as far as how people respond to, you know, some of the changes in the market. And I think uh, the delivery side of it has really caught some people flat-footed because it really is such a departure from the traditional restaurant model, kind of how you prepare it. And for a lot of foods, it just doesn't travel that well. But it's something that it created that gap where, where groups like Uber Eats and Grubhub became, you know, step filled that gap and became massively uh, successful as far as their gross revenues. But it, it was really hard to sustain as, as the restaurateur. So I think now this is forcing that the change that, that the restaurant industry already had to make, now they really have to make with COVID. Be able to really extend their dining room and, and make their restaurant be able to extend into your own living room. So it, it's kind of like the retail business. These trends were already happening. It's just the changes that might have happened over two years happened in two months because of COVID. Is it changing the way you think food halls might be designed in the in the future? Or was the basic business model still the same today with some some operating differences? You know, I think before it was smart to, to really have delivery aspect incorporated. Now it's absolutely essential. I would think, you know, kind of an outdoor lifestyle center, turning that into a food hall might um, be a detriment just because of exposure to the elements. But now I think that's a concept that really has legs. If you really make that an outdoor, you know, food hall or, you know, we, we, we're looking at a project of doing it um, with storage containers. So... You know, because I, I think even in that aspect, unlike a traditional retail or a real estate uh, investment, where once you put that money in, it's really hard to recapture the investment at the end of it. If you decide to, to change directions, if you do do the storage containers, at least at the end of it, you have a fit out storage container that you can sell someplace or take someplace else. So I think a lot of those concepts become a lot more interesting with such a focus on the outdoor space, people pretty clearly feel a lot more comfortable dining outdoors today than they do indoors. So I think being able to take advantage of that. But yes, it's it's that's exactly the point of things that were going to happen in two years have happened in two months. You know, we, we had seen the delivery business going up 15% per year, but it's it's the, the curve has become that much steeper through COVID for sure. Are you doing your own delivery, Kevin, or we'll talk about these delivery services and, I, you know, I hear that they're expensive and there's, they take a lot of margin away, but have you processed through that? I think when you get on the bigger side, yeah, it, it makes sense to, to do your own. It's just that you still have to, whether you want to or not, you still have to leave them a place because the guests, in order to have your, your, your brands have exposure, you know, if, if they're really about the Uber Eats app that's on their phone, they're going to find you through Uber Eats or not find you at all. So it's, it's hard to block out those services. It's just a matter of do you supplement and do your own to the extent you can. That makes sense in a food hall where you have, you know, 12 to 18 operators that can all pay into the cam pool to pay for that. It's tougher, I think, if you're one standalone restaurant, you're just going to hire a dedicated person or two, especially at peak times, to do the delivery themselves. And even technology-wise, what what radius are you willing to do that in if a call comes in? You know, it's 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 always been a challenging thing for the business, but it's similar to the hotel business with online travel agencies. They would love for them to just go away, but since not, you kind of have to play ball. We've been focusing, as you know, on experiential entertainment and uh, retail as a, a way to get people off their computers and offer a, an environment that e-commerce can't. How do you see those evolving in the future? I know you've got a lot of thoughts uh, there. And then how do you see F&B and food-based entertainment, food halls playing a part in 
mixed use and retail places going forward? I mean, it, it's something that, that is more critical than it ever was before in the sense that having these gathering spaces, I mean, we're really a, we're really a social species and um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and it's, you know, food, shelter, water, safety, and then a driving need to connect. And it's something that um, I think through COVID, the, the isolation is, is really uh, detrimental to, to all of us. So I think those things that pull people out of their homes, if they can be done in a, in a, in a way that, that people feel safe are absolutely critical to, to who we are. And, and it's something that, you know, being on the discovery district and seeing these people on Fridays and Saturday nights. And, you know, it's, it's not just that they're, you know, they are there to have fun, but it's something that they're there because they need it. And I think it's, it's something that as a lot of the traditional things where, where people were interacting, get eliminated in the sense that, you know, a lot of, a lot of offices are talking about not bringing employees back. So that, you know, you lose that water cooler, you lose those, those, those day-to-day interactions, and that's going to make it that much more important for the shopping experience, for the dining experience to have those interactions and have that, you know, it's a shared experience. It's sharing something with somebody. It's, it's eye contact. It's, you know, and that's this, this touchless world is, is so difficult with that because who, who we are as, as a species still really hasn't changed. So I think it's, it's going to make those things that much more important and make people need to do that even more than they did before. Yeah, what's, what's interesting is we all thought we were doing the right things before COVID by bringing in F&B and activating our projects. And a lot of that is sort of counter to what COVID has brought us. And they're sort of uh, the other side of COVID. But I know you have invested a lot in activation. You've hired teams with musicians and and event programmers. What is activation events and program? What does that look like post-COVID and how important is that going forward? I mean, it, it was critical and somehow it is more critical. I mean, I, I, I've been uh, regularly closing our, our restaurant on Fridays and Saturday nights myself. And again, you just see the need on these people's faces that they need this. They need to be, I can, you know, to an extent, I just ask them to wear their mask, ask them to social distance. But, you know, I think it's also a, a bigger level to the people that don't have families. It's something that I think at times people with families have been unfair and kind of understanding the experience for someone who doesn't. If you're home alone quarantining or, you know, home, home alone social distancing, it's just, you and your television every night or you're, you're working remotely and, you know, it's just you and your pet. It's something that you get to Friday and you really feel pent up as opposed to being able to go home and, and, and have a family that you're interacting with socially every night. And it's something that one way or the other, they're going to do it. So finding a way to do it safely. But I, I think it is going to be something that hopefully as we get to a vaccine and I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be temperature checks. That's probably the easiest way to do it practically. I think it's going to be something of cleaning supplies that stay on the surface and continue to disinfect. Or, you know, I think that's going to be an aspect. You know, there could be applications of UV lights and do they kill this? You know, but I, I, I think it's going to be a lot of those things. But there's really no option for this to go away. There's no option for social gathering to not exist anymore. The, the impacts that this has had on mental health, that this has had on, on, on drug abuse, on suicide, on domestic violence, on child abuse, all those things. So it's, it's pretty terrible. And I don't think we're going to know how bad it is until probably early next year as the dust starts to settle. But as terrible as it is, we, we, we were doing a meal donation through uh, the quarantine to a local children's hospital. And they had more child abuse deaths in a month than they usually have in a year. So it's something that just because on one side, you know, the quarantining and the distancing is helping people, but it's, you know, kind of rears its head in other aspects in the mental health. And that's where this coming together, we have to find a way to do it because as a species, we can't not. You you talked about single people meeting one another and dating and you can't do everything on 
online and you just worry about young people socializing, you know, is this year off when you're you're 25 years old and and how do you how do you date in a covid world and and I I I would think F&B and food halls can maybe be a positive contributor to making that making that safe during this transition period. And I, I think people, you know, some of the technology has gone with it, where, again, those cleaning things are UVs or, or instant temperature checks. We just line up with the little thing like, you know, you, you put your, your you line your head up with a temperature check with the dot, you know, thing on your head and it gives you a temperature check in two, three seconds. I think maybe that's going to be the way it, it, it it's going to be in the future. But as people have asked of what's the new future, you're like, well, I can't be that different than the old future because this is who we've been for thousands of years and we can't just do all this virtually. It, it doesn't work. You know, it's, it's always going to come out in some other way. So that's where I think experiential retail, experiential food and beverage, that's not only here to stay, but going to become even more important without that community office environment, more important with that, with people seeing each other less and less and the way it is even in schools and, if college kids are, are taking classes virtually, they're going to need those nights and weekends where, where they can actually, you know, um, have shared experiences with, with people even more than they did before. And Kevin, if, as you look forward to the return of the customer post-COVID to F&B, to the restaurant business, which, which will just include food halls in there, it's interesting. Some people think oh, it'll just go back to normal. Some people think it'll never be the same. And I tend to think there will be some changes at the margins, but you know, a 10% change is big, <laughs> you know, in whether it's the office business or the retail business or the F and B business, H- how do you see the return of business? Say we get a vaccine. What changes do you see that COVID really spawned uh, sticking? The less obvious one is that, unfortunately, cost of goods has started to really creep up as some of these, you know, food treatment facilities, these farms have had their own um, restrictions and their their own procedures that now they have to do. So their expenses have gone up. That's been passed through to the restaurant. So that's one thing that, as you said, it's, it's tight margins that that made it tighter. So even what what guests see on the front, uh, you know, on, on the obvious stuff of now we're at 75, now we're at 50%. The cost of goods have gone up through that. Through COVID, fine dining basically disappeared. I think everyone through this really likes comfort food. People want tacos. People want burgers. People want pizza. They like that familiarity. And again, they like that comfort. So that's really what's been selling lately. But at the same time, I think that craving of experience that only fine dining can give you will come back. But I, I do think that, you know, COVID has pushed some, some great changes that are going to continue. The things like being able to do virtual dinners through Zoom with a celebrity chef anywhere in the world, you know, virtual concerts where different bandmates are in different places and they can do a collaboration some of these things you wouldn't have thought of. You're like, I don't see that going away because that's neat. <laughs> and I think there are definitely are going to be some of those things that we're going to very gladly put in the rearview mirror as a, as a vaccine comes out. And, and, and hopefully this becomes, you know, kind of part of the past. And some of those things that we're forced to, to incorporate that, that stick around and, you know, are part of the, the ongoing culture. I mean, a big thing with us, in the restaurant community, I think it's been charity, which I think that aspect is gonna is gonna continue. We you know, we we partnered with Family Gateway, their charity here in Dallas, and been one of the only ones that's been accepting new families through through COVID. You know, a lot of single mothers and a lot of children. So we've been supporting them every Monday, ten percent of our proceeds. We're giving them you know gift cards so they can come in and eat anonymously because you know these kids have really been just eating in shelters for the last four months. We're partnering with Wounded Warriors uh, starting in October. We're doing Warrior Wednesdays. We're doing North Texas Food Bank. We're uh, now working with Genesis, which is a domestic violence shelter here in Dallas. So it's, it's something that I think is, is really important to the restaurant community and something that's 
become that much more of a focus through COVID. My partner, Kelly, has been working with Hope for the City in Vegas every day for the last seven plus months. I think they're up to something like 6 million pounds of food and over 600,000 people served. So I think those, those charity aspects, really connecting the restaurants to the community, I think that's going to stay as well as something that's you know, be, become much more critical during COVID, but it's going to continue after it. Well, you know, interesting you say that because we, we certainly feel in so many ways disconnected. And like you mentioned, people that live alone, but people that are staying home from work with their family, whether their kids are home doing virtual learning or, you know, during the summer when the kids were home. So they're more connected than they ever were. And then I think about some other ways that we're more connected going forward, likely. I've, I've got, had several friend groups that uh, we've been doing Zoom calls. We used to maybe see each other twice a year. But, you know, well, since then, we've been talking every couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, so we're more connected. And you think about at Trademark, we have uh, most of our people, majority are in the field at properties across the country. And um, we used to have uh, like once a year, a number of those people would come in. We'd have one meeting. Well, we've been having, it was twice a month. We're having monthly all company virtual town halls. And we're planning to keep those going. And we never really even understood how that technology could be used pre-COVID. So I think there's a chance. And then think about families. We polled our people and 56% of our people said they'd like to work at home at least one day a week. So in the future, they may feel more connected to their kids or their spouse than they ever were uh, really? be- because of that. that you know, so I, you know, I think there, there will be some really good things coming out of this. Many of them that I just mentioned are technology enabled. So speaking of technology and any other impacts on retail, F&B, placemaking that will involve technology going forward? Because I know you mentioned several ways in the food hall. Any other ways you see technology being involved in placemaking F&B retail going forward? Well, I think the, the QR code opened up a whole new door to things where we're doing things with virtual menus. We're doing things with whole animation can come up on your phone based on what, you know, what the ingredients are in a cocktail. And you can kind of go down the whole um, rabbit hole with that. We can do donate buttons with the phones. Cause again, I think kind of tying to, you know, a, a gr- great things that are going to stay is I think even on the charity side, uh, people that are, are doing fine through this feel compelled to give to charity. But I think that's where a restaurant becomes a vehicle for that, where it's something of, you know, I want to help, but how, we give them the how. Um, and that's also part of the technology of kind of being able to do that directly through the app. But, you know, it, it's that's become a touchless experience in, in restaurants everywhere where everyone's just scanning the QR code unless people are touching the menus. And then, you know, uh, obviously being able to do a seamless ordering experience. I think the challenge with that is, you know, we went through this exercise last year, actually, with, with MasterCard as we were... We were starting to explore what would it be restaurant of the past, restaurant of present, restaurant of future. And a lot of the things as we started to mentally explore what the restaurant of the future is, it, it, it you know, <laughs> candidly was a bit frightening as we we're like, wow, it, it seems to be like this disconnected um, kind of uh, service experience. So trying to utilize that technology that's going to become more and more available without separating what is that that authentic person-to-person interaction that people crave as part of the dining. So it's how can we do it in a way that would enhance the experience and maybe tell them more about what they are consuming. And I think, you know, which I think is a, a huge part of today's dining consumer that with the creation of a food network and all these kinds of programs, people are much more aware of what's going into a dish and being able to show those aspects on the phone or on a, on a tablet. And you can say, what is in that cocktail versus this one? And maybe I'd want to make that one at home and being able to do that in a touchless way and again, make people connect more as opposed to less. And I think the, the other big application that's going to happen is in terms of decor and design. We've already seen it with the lack of expense and flexibility of LED lights, being able to change a room and change the way it feels. And I think that's going to become um, more commonplace as far as you know, even LED walls on screens. And you know, we had uh, the AT&T's uh, headquarters there 
their main lobby. You can walk through it and it can be the ice forest from Game of Thrones or it can be, you know, you're in the middle of a, of a ski slope at the Olympics or with all these screens. And I think that's going to be something that could be interesting how those can change, you know, by season, they could change in ways that, you know, connects you with the farm. And now you're on the farm at the place where you're having a glass of wine and you're now in the vineyard those kinds of things, I think could start to become uh, included. You know, you hear the rustle of the leaves as the wind blows and, you know, I think those could be something that, again, enhances a guest's experience while not separating them from human interaction. Because I think that's always going to be the limitation as more technology gets included, especially in the restaurant world. You, I've heard you say before that your thoughts on the future of retail are unorthodox. I'm wondering what's, what you think is unorthodox about your views and what where you think retail, the consumer mindset, lifestyle trends are going? I think mine are a bit unorthodox because I, I try to, you know, as, as, you, as you examine things of cause and effect or, or, you know, what's the symptom versus what's the, what's the, what's at the root of it. And, and for us, we really start with demographics and understanding what's going on with the demographics, you know, of our world, especially you know, the, of, the, of the developed countries of our world and that average life expectancy has gone up every year with the exception of the world wars since 1900 and has gone up significantly. And even over the last 30 years, that life expectancy has gone up about eight years. How that has impacted consumers in the sense of, you know, 30 years ago, it was kind of retirement and, you know, pretty shortly afterwards going towards a retirement home, as opposed to today where people are working much longer People are, you know, in their 60s to 70s and they are very mobile and they are eating and they are drinking and they are wearing bikinis and they are going to, you know, food halls and they're reconnecting with old friends. And I think that's something where we've really seen um, the impact across uh, uh, millennials and and kind of baby boomers in the sense of it's really created a consumer that didn't exist 30 years ago. So I think some of my thoughts are unconventional in that I really started with the demographics are because I'm trying to dig to, you know, kind of, uh, as we're all trying to predict what the trends are and what will be successful and what won't be and, and to why to try to get to the, the core root as to why these things, you know, as opposed to um, looking at something of, well, people like this food or this kind of experience more than that one and just doing that experience and trying to figure out why do they. And I think it's something of, because a lot of millennials came up with a lot of virtual experiences and a lot more online uh, interactions, it's that much more critical for them to connect over breaking bread. And I'd say, again, the same is true with a lot of people that are now reconnecting with old friends or people in the baby boomer uh, generation. And, you know, I'm seeing it with my wife's parents, um, my parents were, and, you know, reconnecting with friends from high school after kids are out of the, kids are out of the house and, you know, old college friends and, you know, and, and having a food and beverage experience that helps to break some of those barriers. And it's much more interactive and it's, it's very non-COVID. I would have said, you know, your, your, your hands on my plate, my hands on yours, and you're eating what I'm eating. But it's something that I think it's going to impact on the fine dining world in the sense of having it with courses. And first course comes out at the same time and, you know, you think it's salty. You think it's, you know, I think it's sweet. I think it's this. And having, you're eating what I'm eating. It's just going to matter of how do we do that in the COVID world because those shared experiences are so critical to making memories together. And, but it's something that um, I think, again, is, is going to be that much more important through COVID, as we have been, you know, connecting less and less over the last, you know, five, 10 years. And it's something that, you know, again, as we've seen the average life expectancy go up over the last 120 years, pretty consistently, you know, for the last three, four years, the first time it's dropped, which is pretty, you know, startling. And, you know, it's really because of, because of suicide, it's because of substance abuse. Um, You could even consider those in some ways, uh, you know, the same category, but it's, it's something that, you know, we're seeing that also increase exponentially with, with COVID 
and with this isolation and the social distancing. So again, I think because it's, it's going to put more strain on people that are isolated, if, if, they're, if, if they're not interacting in person as much in the workplace as they used to, or with shopping as they used to, or dining as they used to, if they are ordering out more on Tuesday nights, going to be that much more critical for them to go out on Friday nights. So I think it is going to be one of those, you know, the rope gets shorter on one on one side, it's going to get longer on the other. So Kevin, is there anything else that you see changing post-COVID or any other trends that you see that you'd like to share with our uh, audience? Sure. I mean, I, I think the biggest thing we're seeing is this is the first time we've ever had a situation where A, the technology enables it to be possible, but it's the first time ever that you are encouraged to stay home to work. I think that's the first time any of us have ever seen this. And where, you know, it used to be, um, as you were just saying, Terry, now some people are, are going to be working, you know, from home one day a week. And, and we have been able to, you know, as bandwidth has expanded so much, so much over the last 10, 15 years, as far as with the capabilities, you know, us even having this Zoom call right now really wasn't possible with the bandwidth available 12 years ago at the last recession. This is the first time we're seeing p- people really able to work from anywhere. And you can, ha- you, know, you can meet over architectural plans and I can take over your mouse and I can you know, point out this, this, and this. And you never could do that without being in person before. So I think that's really going to put a lot more pressure on uh, a lot of the older cities, a lot of the bigger cities in this country as well as others. We've already been seeing the loss of population in New York City, in Chicago, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco. And I think, you know, if you're a worker in those cities, you're like, I'm commuting virtually anyway. You know, it's expensive as heck to live here. It's a 90 plus minute commute. Maybe my kids' schools aren't that great. You know, people are going to leave. And people have been leaving. I, 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 you know, having moved from New York about a little over a year ago, a lot of my friends quarantined. They just didn't go back. They went to their, their parents' place in, in Charlotte or in Denver, and they're just, you know, six weeks later, like, ready to go back to New York. And you know, the roundtable consensus was, no, we're, we're not going back to this. Like, you know, I, I don't want to go back to my, you know, twice as expensive as almost anywhere else in the country place in San Francisco where groceries are expensive and commute is brutal and parking is impossible and... But at the same time, I don't think everyone's going to go rural. You know, I don't think people are willing to have, you know, I think those amenities of the city are still absolutely crucial. So I think it's going to be kind of those next tier cities. I think places like Raleigh, Durham, and I think, you know, places like uh, Knoxville and even, you know, places like Waco are going to become, I mean, people still want to be able to have you know, a great restaurant experience, a great shopping experience. They, they still are going to, you know, they're not willing to sacrifice that in the moves, but if they can have great schools for their kids and a 20 to 30 minute commute as opposed to a 90 minute commute and living expenses that are 40% less, they're going to make those moves because it is the first time that you really can do a lot of jobs from anywhere because of the, the, these advances in technology. And I think COVID has really changed that world dramatically. And I think, you know, I think it's, it's also going to be a bit of a, a, a tighter examination of what the state tax rate is for a lot of the different states. Because I think that could be the decision-making. You know, I was talking to a friend who's, who's you know, his, his mother's in Greenville, South Carolina, and he was looking down there, but an hour over the border is Knoxville. And, you know, if you're in Tennessee, it's 1%. And if you're in South Carolina, it's like somewhere between, you know, six and eight, you know, depending on what your income level is. And that matters if you're, you know, if you're just commuting with a, with a laptop from and kind of shared workspaces and home. So I think that's something that as people are making those moves, some of those, you know, some of that data, some of those, <laughs> those key points of what your, what your expenses are, what your taxes are, are going to become critical in where people are going to end up and where kind of the next hotspots open up in the country. Only thing I would add out of COVID that's really been really interesting is that for us with our expansion, our biggest challenge has been a lack of talent on the market because talented people are tied up and great bosses aren't letting them go. 
And this was the first time for us that, you know, the people we've been able to add through COVID has been incredible. I mean, we, we have people that would have taken six, nine months of long conversations of trying to convince them to give us a shot. You know, people furloughed them and we snatched them up. So some of the best hires we've ever had as a company have happened in the last three months. And we're like, we'll move around whatever we got to move around on the budget. But if we can get that person, like we're getting that person. So I think that's also been something in COVID that, you know, it's, it's as we looked at our pipeline at times, our, our biggest barrier to expansion has been having the talent to be able to, to handle the work. And through COVID, um, we've been able to address that. So I think that's been an, in, another interesting thing never seen before with COVID of, you know, people with, with spouses and kids and bills that might not, you know, if they're getting paid every two weeks, they're not going to take that leap, but <laughs> they get furloughed and we made the offer and they accepted it. And, and now we couldn't be happier. So we have some amazing new members of our team. And I, I think it's been something that I think the companies that are, I think a lot of the stronger companies are going to do better. Um, I, I think, cause it is, you have to stay flexible and, and take advantages of, of what's there. Yeah. We've experienced that. I talked to a company yesterday that has experienced that. It is a great time to collect talent for those that, you know, think they'll have something for them to do for certain. And I, I do have a question related to the restaurant business. Cause as, as you read all this about, uh, I read one article, 60% of the restaurants that were open pre-COVID will close by the end of the pandemic, whether it's a fourth or a half or 60%, it kind of doesn't matter. There's going to be lots and lots of real estate. There are going to be lots of second-gen real estate space. There's also going to be lots of talent. So how do you see the comeback of the business? You know, restaurants close, but then there's, there's always entrepreneurs and they have always the chefs and operators with family members or friends that have money. Give us a sense of how you think the entrepreneurial side of the restaurant business will come back. I'm, I've always seen that downturns and dislocations create opportunities for entrepreneurs. How do you see that happening going forward in the restaurant business? I mean, I think, again, it's going to be a lot of outdoor spaces, a lot of outdoor experiences, a lot of trying to give people that experience they've, they've always craved, but doing it in a place that makes them feel safe. Uh, some people are leaving the industry entirely and they're just not going to come back. I think a lot of these people have been, you know, if they got furloughed and they took the last three, four months to figure out what they want to do again, because I think a lot of people really got shooken up by this. They're coming out of it saying never again. I mean, some of the people we've hired have frankly been wanting to shadow, you know, shadow me more in terms of, you know, I want to learn more about real estate. I don't want to be just all in on, on food and beverage. And I've been doing nothing but restaurants for the last 20 years. So, you know, we, we've started doing uh, internal courses every Tuesday with um, open to our whole team um, where we just teach for two, three hours or as, as long as people want to ask questions and just doing internal development. I think for us, we've, we've been able to, to hire a lot of people also that are on the younger side that have amazing attitudes might be a little green. And we're like, well, well, how do we make them less green? Let's, let's not wait for it to happen organically. Maybe we can do it ourselves. I think the strong are going to come back stronger, but it is something that some people are just going to go away and not come back. And some people that are really talented and really have something worth, you know, worthwhile to contribute to the industry might go away and not come back. There's going to be less noise in the market. I think there's going to be less people that are there just to be there. Cause I think a lot of that, there's a bit of a, filtering, I think, that happened as a result of this. And um, a lot of those people uh, won't be there. Well, you know, we, we talk a lot about the oversupply of retail in this country. And I felt like pre-COVID, we had an oversupply of restaurants. Well, I was going to ask, so do, do you believe that? And, and, and it sounds like you, you think that the, the folks that were sort of, that had gotten the business because money was flowing easily, not because they were passionate about it, those might get out and those that are left will be more of the serious operators, your observation? Yes, for sure. And I think with entrepreneurs, as I'm sure it is with you, uh, you know, the people, the people that need to do this need to do this. Like I need to do this. Like I can't see myself. If I, if there was any possibility in who I was of doing something else, I would do that. 
you know, because it's so tough to be an entrepreneur. You're here because you absolutely have to, and there's no other possibility other than creating, you know, so I need to create. So no matter how uh, rough the storm is, <laughs> I need to do it. So I'm going to keep on doing it. And I think that's the same for a lot of chefs. You know, a lot of our, our talented partners, like we're going to wait this out because, you know, it's, it's at a core of, of, of who we are. So there's, there is no, I don't do this. So I think the talent will, will come back. And I think like you're saying with, with the zoom calls, I think there's going to be more interaction. I think there's going to be more cross pollination. I think there's going to be, you know, I think there's going to be some really international things that are, that are going to be cool. I think there's going to be more opportunity for, you know, what happens if this, this, you know, chef from Dallas does something virtually with a, with a chef in Tokyo. And I think, I think there's going to be a lot of neat things to come out of this. I think it is going to, you know, it's going to isolate people and it's going to connect people. Like you're saying with the zoom calls, there's going to be people that never would have interacted that are, that have really been taught through the last you know, seven plus months of, you know, this really can feel authentic. This can feel like a real conversation. You know, I have less barriers than I ever had before. Well, I want to thank you for your time, Kevin. It's been enlightening and interesting and fun talking to you. Thanks. To learn more about what Trademark Property is doing in the retail and mixed-use business, check out our website, trademarkproperty.com. To make sure you don't miss any of our episodes of Leaning In, make sure you hit the subscribe button and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks for listening.